Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 226, recorded December 19th, 2015. So we have some more DC Comics Volume 1. Today we're going to cover issues 25, 26, and 27. Yes. Yes, indeed. So we're finishing up the... Uh, one of the most uh, disappointing uh, story arcs I I think I may have ever read, uh, short of Goldie. Ow, that's harsh. It's harsh, I know, but uh, I think it's justified. (laughs) And Diane Duane's really good, right? Right, yeah, right. Uh. Yeah, so... Last time we did these issues, uh, that was way back in episode 221, so we took a little break doing some IDW. So in case you don't remember, there, we started off a new two-parter written by Diane Duane, where this alien insectoid group took over the Enterprise because Kirk let it happen because they were such a, a non-threat. And then uh, we get to find out what happens to these these creatures. Yes. And the people, the Grand, that blew up the insect alien's ship. At the end, yeah. Yes, at the end of uh, the first issue. Right. So, uh, and then after that, uh, we get like a one-off, and then uh, today, and then the the last one. Does the last one continue? or No, no. no it's a one-off, too. No. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so, the, so the middle one is a Spock story, mostly, and then... Um, Captain Spock, and then the the last one is just uh, uh, you know back on the Excelsior. Right. Oh, that's right. I remember now. <laughs> yeah these these stories are not the not not what we we've gotten over the last uh, even over the last you know twenty something issues of this uh, DC Volume One. I mean, there's been a couple of uh, duds, but overall the the quality's been good. The writing's been good. Just these three books, just not <sighs> that good. Kind of three duds in a row. Now, that's not to put anyone off from listening any further. <laughs> but. Right. So, anyway, so just be prepared. We may have a s- few more snide comments than, than we might have. <laughs> oh, lots of those. Okay. So, all right. Well, do you want to jump into the next issue? 25? I will do. I will do. So, right. Issue 25. It's titled Double Blind Part 2. Published date April 1986. Writer Diane Duane. Artists, Tom Sutton and Ricardo Vilgran. Letterer, Augustin Moss. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. Editor, Robert Greenberger. The cover shows Kirk and a very Robin Curtis-looking Sabek in the center with two armed aliens ready to attack each other. It's the insectoid Azir versus the Tigeresque Grand in a battle to the death with Kirk and company caught in the middle. As Kirk is dealing with the Azure people that came aboard the Excelsior as conquerors, another player joined in this most unusual game. Up until now, Kirk was playing this encounter with the Azure people with the patience of a saint, allowing the Azure to think Kirk actually surrendered. The truth is the Azure are all bark and no bite. They seem inexperienced and even inept at running their own ship. Kirk allows them to think they have the upper hand while he learns more about them. But this new ship, representing the Grand Protectorate, seems to be another thing altogether. They have teeth and showed little restraint in using them while they blew the Azir's ship totally away with no warning. The Azir captain on the bridge next to Kirk, is quivering with fear. The Azir know the ground quite well, and keeps saying, they are all doomed, doomed, William. Kirk asks how many of his people were aboard the ship that was destroyed. 
The Yajir replies, none. Kirk is amazed that the Yajir's entire fighting force numbers eight people. They may not have much in the brains departments, but the Yajir have balls of solid brass. Kirk ends the charade, and the Yajir comes clean, telling him they know all about Kirk. They know he saves the universe on a regular basis. Kirk needs to do something now to save them all. The Grand hail the Excelsior and orders their immediate surrender. Kirk tells Ahura to delay them any way she likes. He needs more time. Ahura proceeds to act like the Excelsior's answering machine and then closes the channel. Some of the crew are quite amused by the wacky communication officer's antics but it did not really give Kirk all that much time. Luckily, it was enough time for Sabic to complete her analysis and come to the conclusion that the Grand ship's total power output was not much more than the Azir. They could barely harm Excelsior if their shields were down, but with the shields up, they are no threat at all. Kirk thinks a moment, then apparently decides to do the fake surrender routine with the Grand too. The Azir captain is crazy with fear. Kirk tells him to take his people to Rec Room 4. They should be safe there while Kirk surrenders to the Grand. Kirk sends an armed detail down to the transporter room as an honor guard to meet the Grand when they beam over. They have further orders to bring them up to the bridge where Kirk will surrender to them officially. When they arrive on the bridge, there are 14 Grand warriors that are actually cats. Not tigers or lions. They're domestic house cats. Walking on their hind legs and carrying little blue rifles. Kirk surrenders the Excelsior and proceeds to do the same teach the stupid aliens how to run the ship routine. The Horta officer becomes a scratching post despite the fact he is a rock and not made of wood. Savik talks the cat she is working with into letting her see their media display tech. Savik hits the record button and captures all kinds of information concerning their cat overlords, to which she, of course, says, absolutely fascinating. She contacts Kirk and informs him that the Grand Empire is made up of two small planets not far from here. Like the Azir, what tech they have has been passed down from their ancient ancestors. Both of their worlds are economically depressed. They pose no threat to the Federation. Kirk has heard enough and decides it's time to bring this to an end. He brings Captain Kitty to the recreation room the Azir are hiding in. When they enter and Kirk introduces the Azir, Captain Kitty quivers with fear. It thinks the Azir are a mighty race that could swat the ground like a fly. He now thinks that destroying the ship that turned out to be an Azir ship will bring the Azir war armada down on them. Oh, woe is me! From a safe position behind Kirk, the Azir start acting tough to the trembling kitty. Kirk turns and tells the Azir off. They both should be using their resources on helping the poor and needy on their own worlds rather than wasting them playing space pirates. It turns out both the Grand and Azir were trying to provoke an attack from the Federation so they could claim war damages. Kirk tells them there are better ways to ask for help than attacking people. Both races need help, but are too proud or too scared of looking weak to ask for it. McCoy and Kirk advise them how they need to change their ways to save their worlds. They need to start with dropping the Tough Guy Act that has just led to isolating them from trade, new ideas, and growth. But now that it's known that they are not formidable warrior races, they will be attacked and conquered by stronger races. Kirk and McCoy come up with a plan to establish Federation trading stations on both their worlds. It will bring commerce and new ideas. It will revitalize their worlds and people. Since the Federation has trading posts, it will be obliged to protect them and their host planets. The Azir and Grand agree to bring the proposal to their governments. The Grand, Captain Kitty, 
offers to give the Azir a ride back to their worlds. World. The rest of the issue is devoted to Kirk trying to explain to Savick and McCoy how the captain's odd approach to dealing with these two alien races worked out best for all. The odd approach includes surrendering surrendering the Excelsior twice in one day to two different alien races, which Savick says the brass will not like. Kirk says this is just the latest example of him not going by the book, but achieving success anyway. The end. Oh my goodness, that was a good one. Oh, gosh. On the cover where they make the ground look like, like, like almost like saber-toothed tigers. Right. And then you're reading it and going, okay, now we're going to see the ground. Uh, and then it, they're like, they're cats. They're house cats. That's it. I mean, they don't even make any attempt to make them look anything more than house cats. It's like, ooh. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, they're just these naked little cats walking around. Exactly. Carrying guns. Which little su- guns. Which supposedly they're operating with no opposable thumbs. I don't know. <laughs> Well, maybe they're uh, maybe they're those laser cats from Saturday Night Live over the last several years. <laughs> laser cats, probably. Maybe that's where they got the idea from. Maybe oh, maybe this comic. Another. Yeah, remember, remember Star Trek number twenty-five? Yeah, <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. No, absolutely um, ridiculous. Yeah, and and all the all the Sulu and all the other crew just looking all doughy-eyed at them. Oh, so cute. Yeah. Uh, I was just like, yeah, and all the forced humor. It's like when a her was, you know, doing the answering machine thing, or maybe the the operator, right? It's like it wasn't that funny. And no, it was the answering people... machine because she says, "Leave your name and exactly. name and frequency at the sound of the beep." Exactly. How would people <laughs> two hundred years from the future even know what an answering machine is or what the heck she's doing? Right. No, it was it was just it. it it's trying to be funny. It's not. And then the Horta getting all scratched up for comedic effect. Yeah. And they made him look more brown in this issue. So you're like, oh, maybe he is a wood, but he's not. He's a rock. Right. I don't think cats use rocks as scratching posts. Right. And <clears throat> I don't know. You know, you know I've, I've, I've had my comments about, you know, fish people and bird people and things like that in the past. Um, but at least those scenarios, they gave them some sort of, they looked, they didn't look just like a normal domesticated fish or domesticated bird. You know, yeah. they had some humanoid or something that made them look like they were sentient beings. Whereas these guys, uh, looks like I just went and took pictures of my cat. <laughs> Through and Photoshop a little gun on him. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Not my favorite episode issue. No. And then the fact so much of it was just an exact retailing, almost panel by panel, from the last issue, which I didn't like it then either. When they were no teaching the stupid uh, lobster people. Right. Yeah. Or the, yeah. So yeah, right. So so they're redoing the same thing. Because it was so funny in the last issue. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that funny. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Diane, you've done many wonderful things, but this ain't it. This ain't one of them. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. The last thing I have to say about this one, <laughs> I don't have that much to say, is it looks like they might have messed up the word balloons on page 13 of the PDF. Uh, right. Where the one was talking to the other one. Yeah, the Grand Cat is asking how he can get home since they blew up his ship. You know, right. Obviously, they got those mixed up. Right. Yeah. Yep, I got the same thing. Right. Yeah, and I. So much of this is just such forced humor. So he says that, and then, and then he's like, "Oh no, no problem. I'll drop you off. I'm going that way anyways. I'll just drop you off. I mean, that's that's not funny." <laughs> The the whole, uh, it's on my way kind of thing. Right. Because ten minutes ago, these guys didn't even know the other one, you know, where their real empires were, right? Because they had both lied so much and built themselves up that they'd been avoiding each other all these years. Yeah. Well, and also, you just got through blowing up my ship. 
<laughs> we don't have that many ships. We got, what do you say, three ships? Or, or right. four ships? Yeah, the other two aren't that good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you blew up like a third of our fleet, and you're just going to give us a ride home. Oh, well, in that case, fine. Like, I, mm, okay. Anyway. Right. And they, they make several Klingon jokes. Oh, yeah. How would, yeah, how do they know about Klingons? Yeah, how do well, they know about Klingons? They know about Kirk. So if yeah, they know true. about Kirk, they might know about Klingons. I guess so. Yeah. But for that to be part of their, yeah. their legend is that they the other one eats Klingons for breakfast. Right. Oh. They say that about each other. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then I call them lobster people, but they don't look anything like lobster. But the little final joke is that Kirk says, uh, you know, whatever representative we send to these planets, let's make sure they're not allergic to fur or lobster. Yeah, right. Eh, it's not funny. No. <laughs> no, so so lobsters are, are arachnids, right? I mean, same family right. as spiders. Are, are they? I think. Crust- crustaceans and arachnids are in the same family? Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know they were. Cr- well, whatever. The main point. I mean, they're they're related to insects. They look like insects. Yeah. So, well, oh, they okay. So, technically speaking, arachnids aren't insects, but whatever. Um, I mean, they look like bugs. Mm-hmm. And they got bugs with a lot of legs. They got a lot of arms and legs. I mean, more than six or eight. Anyway, so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> They're aliens. They want to look. They want to look different. But yeah. So the lobster joke, right? Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's all right. A- anything know. in this book? Is that specious? I don't know. But anything in this book you did like? Um, would it be bad for me to say no? Uh, no. To be honest, what do you? But I can't think of anything. I mean, the, the art's okay. I mean, right. But not not fantastic. Not fantastic, and I mean the, the the coloring is very old school. They hadn't quite gotten to the to the to the really nice, vivid, uh, beautiful looking uh, color comics they have today. Right. Um, I didn't really spot any jokes. I was like, oh, that's funny. Right. Yeah, uh, I'm in the same boat. I I can't think of a single thing I like yeah. in this issue. Yeah. That's bad because usually I can. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and get ready for the next one. Well, the next one I think is might be the best out of the three. Uh, but that's not saying much. <laughs> no. Anyway, all right. Well, so I, I, and we all appreciate the effort that was put into the comics, and we know but, that these were written for younger audiences, right? So we're here forty plus years. So we know that these comics weren't written for us at this age. They were written for us when we were little kids. So I'm trying to be very open-minded on that too. Right. Right. Because I read these when I was in like junior high school and stuff like that. So, and I probably would have, you know, thought that that joke was those cat people were funny at the time. But, right. Yeah. But every time I think back on Star Trek Volume 1, and it's one of the reasons why we skipped it is because I remember stories like this. Yeah. You know, this unfortunately is what pops out at me. There are some good ones. There's ones where, you know, they have to fight the devil and stuff later on. And those will be good. And then there was the Mirror Universe, which was good. But I remember, you know, fighting giant nutcrackers and things like <laughs> that. So, <laughs> nutcrackers? Nut really? Uh, just, just hang on. We'll get there. Oh, boy. Ooh. <laughs> wow. But again, as a kid. I liked it, but then thinking back as an adult, I'm like, boy, I, yeah, I'm not looking forward to rereading that's, those. You know, that's a really good point. That's a good point. Aimed at the kids, right? Okay, yeah. So, all right. Well, you want to jump into uh, the trouble with transporters? Let's do. All right. So this one was written by uh, Bob Rosakis. Artists were Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagrin. Letterer is Augustin Maz. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman, and editor is Robert Greenberger. So this came out in May of 1986, issue number 26, entitled The Trouble with Transporters. The cover shows Dr. Chu Sa, which is the avian crew member of the Zurich that we met several issues back, uh, Captain Spock, 
and a bearded guy looking over a rocky crevice. Above them, the trio are being stalked by Romulans in full armor. Chusaw is telling Spock that the Romulans will not be able to find them here. How wrong you are, my bird friend. How wrong you are. So the story starts on the USS Surak, which is now above the planet Verdi. And Spock, Dr. Chusaw, Dr. Grace, and a new person named Lieutenant Mello are preparing to beam down to the planet. When Commander Banks hears about this, and you might recall that Commander Banks is the woman that had lots of issues with Spock and his leadership several issues ago. Well, she's back at it. She's informing the bridge crew exactly what she thinks about her half-breed superior and her equal detaste for Lieutenant Mello. Spock catches enough of her rant to request a little one-on-one -on -one with her in his office. He tells her yet again that she needs to voice any of her concerns with him directly and not talk bad about him or any of the other crew to anybody else. He tells her that she's going to man the transporter when they all get ready to leave. Put in her place, she agrees. In the transporter room, everyone is ready to go except for Lieutenant Mello, who arrives late. Dr. Grace makes a comment that Lieutenant Mello is late for everything. Commander Banks then beams the four down, yet only three of them arrive on the planet. Lieutenant Mello is gone. Spock orders the crew on the planet to spread out and see if perhaps she beamed elsewhere. And then he orders that no one on the ship is to transport until they can get this resolved. While the crew is searching for Lieutenant Mello, they are being secretly watched by Romulans. Meanwhile on the ship, Scuttlebutt is that Commander Banks purposely killed Lieutenant Mello due to her dislike for the woman, and her previous comments on the bridge do not help dissuade that line of suspicion. Banks, in her quarters, feels guilty over the accident to Lieutenant Mello's and writes out her registration to Starfleet due to it. While crying at her desk, she is visited by a ghost of Lieutenant Mello, but it quickly vanishes. Is her guilt causing her to hallucinate? Back on the planet, the three crewmen meet back up. Dr. Grace tells Spock about his close call he had when someone took a shot at him and hit his bicycle he was riding. This is a surprise since no one is supposed to be on this planet. Suddenly, they are under a full attack and have to quickly hide behind some rocks. Back on the ship, Banks hears about the attack on her crew and quickly gathers up a box of phasers and beams them, plus herself, down to the planet, openly disobeying Spock's previous orders about not using the transporter. The box of phasers arrives just in time, but Banks does not appear at all. Spock contacts the ship and finds out about Banks' disappearance. During the firefight, a ghost of Banks appears and mouths the words Romulans before vanishing again. Knowing who they are now dealing with, Spock orders a scan for the Romulan base, and they now know that the Romulans are using a device that interrupts transporter beams. Spock hopes to be able to rematerialize Banks and Mellows. Once the Romulan headquarters is located, Spock orders that a probe be launched. The Romulans will be concerned that this is a possible photon torpedo attack and that they will not notice the beaming of Spock, Chusaw, and Grace into the base. The plan is performed and works perfectly. The trio now in the building knock out the remaining Romulans within it. Spock is able to work the machine and brings back Banks and Mello. Dr. Grace makes yet another comment about Mello's previous tardiness, saying, About time you showed up. Spock tells Banks that he has a difficult decision. Does he write Banks up for disobeying his orders or give her a commendation for saving the day with that box of phasers? The question is left unanswered as the story closes. The end. Well, another mediocre issue. Um, and there were a few things I really had a problem with. Um, mainly having to do with the ghost-like apparitions that are happening uh, when uh, Banks and, what, Mellow? Mellow. 
don't fully complete uh, tra their transports. Right. That I thought that just... was so weird. Yeah, kind of Ghost of Christmas Past kind of thing. I know. And it's like, okay, you're either materialized or not materialized. And if you didn't materialize all the way, then you're... You're disassembled atoms, or you are a bit stream of data that hasn't been turned into material or matter again. So, <clears throat> how are you supposed to be hearing everything going on? You don't have ears. How are you supposed to just pop up floating, either on the Enterprise or down on the planet? It's like, meh. Does not compute. Right. And why? why is a Lieutenant Mello stalking banks yeah. right because it's not like it's not like banks is still in the um transporter room right so you know right. why would lieutenant mellow be in her sure. room yeah why not go to the bridge to right. tell somebody or whatever and then as far as banks goes when she was the ghost i mean at least she was about where she was supposed to be beamed down anyway so right. i i could kind of buy that one um the whole storyline reminded me a little bit, a little bit of that um, personal cloaking device episode of Next Generation when Roe and Jordy get uh, cloaked and they're kind of out of phase with the rest well, of the world and nobody can see or hear them or touch them. Right. They're, they're out of phase. Right. So they can see everybody else. They can't see them. And so that was a personal cloaking device that, that did that to them? That the Romulans were testing out, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, because it's the Romulans and because they now have this technology that kind of, you know, moves Lieutenant Mello and Commander Banks out of phase, you know, well, so to speak. I was like, man, this is kind of like that, but Well, no, you're assuming really. it moves them out of phase. I thought, right. Yeah, it's a total assumption. That, that, that's, that's an explanation. It makes more sense than what they – well, they really didn't explain it. They didn't really say anything. They just say it, it hijacks it or something, hijacks yeah. the beam, which right. either – means she should have beamed somewhere else or she should be gone forever, you know? Yeah, or suspended somehow, uh, still not reassembled yet. Right. So like but... I said, it reminded me a little bit of that mo episode, and if I really wanted to, I could try to shoehorn this as being some sort of prototype to that, but that's me really, you know, trying to make things fit. Working hard. <laughs> Working hard! Yeah. Uh, okay, so another thing. What about Bike Boy? So, I don't, so, I, I like riding bikes. I used to be into it. Um, and if you're going to go on an alien planet, you're probably not going to bring a road bike, which is pretty much what he had. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't have a bell on it and a basket. But, <laughs> uh, it looks like a road bike. Um, right. you know, if you're going to yeah, go on a planet... Was. Without paved roads or something to go on, you're probably at least going to have a mountain bike or something. Looks a little more rugged than what he had. Right. <laughs> but that could be amazing future materials, so whatever. But it looks, I don't know, it doesn't look yeah, right for... I, uh, I didn't mention it in the synopsis, but you know, he does spend a lot of time talking about how he built this using ancient plans from, from Earth. Yeah, which is fine that it would look like... You know, but but don't have a skinny little road bike, right? Anyway, whatever. You know, so okay, so what's what's the pro what's the thing with Banks? I mean, she's, mm, I mean, she saved the day, yes, but it's like, gosh, this woman is just doesn't seem to be Starfleet material. Uh, and McCar McCarthy, the other guy, uh, the other bridge officer, seems like he would make a better first officer than Banks. Right. Yeah, I thought she had all her. Situ her issues situated last issue. Right. So I was right. kind of surprised that she was back at it. Right still, at the beginning. Still milking that. It's like, come on. Okay, so, yeah, so things aren't always ducky with your first officer. Okay. Uh, or with your captain, if you have, your captain happens to be Jellico. But it's like, <laughs> this woman is... Mm, yeah, she's... Uh, she, and she's so racist. So, I mean, she yeah. calls him blasted half-breed behind his back to everybody else on the bridge. I mean, she's she does not hide her, her feelings both towards Spock or Lieutenant Mello. Right. Right. And, Doesn't and, she and, say something like, you know, like like she can't figure out what a, a flower is uh, or a hair in her head? You know, she's, 
she's mean. Yeah. I can't remember what exactly she said, but yeah, she was very derogative. Right. And if you're in Starfleet, aren't you exposed to an awful lot of aliens? I mean, look at look at the chief medical officer is is a bird guy with a mohawk, <laughs> with a green mohawk. It's like you can't get over a Vulcan human, well, uh, ancestry person. I don't know. Right. It just doesn't right. seem to fit in in that time period in that job. Anyway. Right. Nope. I agree with you. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back to the bicycle real quick. And this is nothing against the bicycle per se, but it's with the uh, Romulans. The Romulans see this guy riding around on his bicycle looking for Lieutenant Mello, and they shoot at him, and they shoot the bicycle's wheel, and he flies off, and, you know, he does hit a rock with his head, but so he's they, don't, they don't finish him off. They're like, oh, or he's not good. Or take He's him as a prisoner. Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That seems kind of uh, like a miss on their part. Yeah. And speaking of the Romulans, what's with the outfits? Uh, this is what they wore during the movie era. Duh. Uh, really? We just never saw it. Oh. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> it's like their, their well, outfits like, are... Like Genghis Khan, Mongol well, type ancient yeah, uniforms. Right, right. Like some, right, exactly. Some, some old Chinese. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it, they look so big and heavy, and uh, it's a good thing it's a cool planet because I would they'd be hot. Gee. Right. Big. Yeah. Ho- no, heavy, I, I, I didn't like the uniforms. No. Anyway. Um. At least they weren't green. Remember the there was a there was a gold key or a Peter Pan record that had a, had Romulans in it, and they were wearing weird armor like this, but their skin tone was like bright green. Do you remember that? Um, no, not really. I tried <laughs> to put that out of my mind. Oh, oh, it's a piece of our history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and quite frankly, the. Um, Getting on the 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 Asian depiction of these uh, Romulans, uh, there's there's one panel in particular where they show the close up of the guy said who was standing over the uh, the historian or who, what a scientist whatever he was that was Brian the bike. If you take and they got a close up of his face and like his upper teeth are showing, uh, so so his lip is like above his teeth. He almost looks like some. Bad Mickey Rooney uh, imitation of a Chinese person. Mm. Yeah, the the Mickey Rooney reference, in case any young pups out there, is uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes, exactly. A, that was the Asian movie. man. That's right. He is not Asian. He's this little white guy. Yeah. <laughs> and in it case was... you don't even know who Mickey Rooney is, I should just explain it all because yeah, okay, people are going to okay. be like, I don't understand what Ken's talking about. Oh, come on. There's old people. So yeah, we're not, that's we're interesting. Not Bre- Breakfast at Tiffany's was such a good movie, but then you got that. That awkward yeah. performance in it. Ugh. Anyway, whatever. So, yeah, I just I, – I don't like the depiction. Not good. Uh, I, I didn't think of that. But, but yeah, I was getting – I don't know if it was just the armor or the way his face looked. I, reading it, I was getting a, a more of an Asian heritage vibe than – I mean, they're supposed to be Roman, right? I mean, isn't that the whole yep. point of – Romulus was supposed to be this uh, space age Roman Empire type thing. Yeah, it was an analog to the Roman Empire. Right. So somewhere it got lost. Right. Romulus and Remus, Romulans mm-hmm. and Remans. Yeah. Right. Um. Yep. So um, uh, some other miscellaneous things. Sure. That I wasn't too crazy about. Uh, there, Kirk makes an appearance as we as we saw. So uh, Kirk. Calls for a 360 degree turn to plot a cost, uh, course back to Verdi. Right. I didn't put it in my synopsis because it's literally just one page halfway through the book and then yeah. another page at the end. So yeah. Kirk gets a message that he needs to go back and help Spock and he orders this uh, 360 turn. Yeah. Which actually he was probably saying a 180 turn. <laughs> Because if you do a 360 turn, you'll end up way. on your original heading. 
Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. That is hilarious. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, Sue yeah. just spin us around, and then we're just going <laughs> to forget about him. <laughs> we're going to continue on our original course. <laughs> oh, wow, that's funny. I didn't even catch it. Yeah. I did catch the Warp Factor 12, because they, they needed to get there fast. Another thing I was kind of interested in is the fact that um, the phasers they're using. They're saying, like, the phasers are over The phasers are overheating. Uh, and they say something about, I wish we had the newer models. Right. So I, I guess this, you know, so th this is more of a science vessel, I guess, uh, that that Spock is commanding. But so they, they've got, they basically have the Wrath of Khan phasers, the ones from uh, the first and second movies. Um, so this is after, uh, yeah, so, so anyway, um, so it's interesting that they are bothering to even mention the new phasers because we are going to see new phasers in, uh, Star Trek three and four. So I right. thought it was interesting that they, well, number one, I thought it was kind of interesting that they had even mentioned about the phasers being old, uh, because why bother mentioning they're old? Uh, but so it was an interesting intro into the new kit that would be coming into the Star Trek universe. Well, it was already there, right? So this this takes place after Star Trek Three. So I, you know, I was wondering about that. Right, because Spock's alive. Right. <laughs> okay, so so even been worse. Universe, okay, so even worse than that. So anyway, so the main thing is. Why are they even using the old Wrath of Khan phasers in this in this comic? Because they're just uh they're just a lonely science vessel that hasn't gotten upgraded yet. Well, okay, but why? I mean, what, why even add that bit in there? That's For I thought people it was like you who are going to be like, hey, "Excuse me, sir, why are you using excuse the old me, phasers?" Hey. But well, now that they've explained it, you're like, "Okay, it's all great." <laughs> why even bother? I don't know. Yeah, and then uh, you did it. Okay, you made a decision to do it. So you just want to remind people that this is a science vessel. It doesn't get the latest offensive equipment. Right. And they're like, see, we know. We know that these are old ones. So don't write us any letters. I don't know, dude. <laughs> I kind of like the idea that the science vessel doesn't get the state-of-the-art trans warps and stuff like that that uh, the Enterprise and the uh, Excelsior gets. Okay. Well, nobody has trans warp <laughs> except the Excelsior. I know. I was saying that as sarcasm, but, you know, it's... You would have different level of uh, kit, you know, ship by ship, I would think. Well, to some degree, probably. And they wouldn't just... everybody, Everybody in the whole world, universe, turn in your phasers and get your new ones. You know, kind of like in the next generation, Deep yeah. Space Nine, you had two different yep. uniforms and stuff. Yep. And yep. Shuttlecraft versus even in generations, out. even in generations, you've got a mix of different uniforms being used. Right. Because they were being phased out. There you go. But Problem solved. I still think it's an odd choice to use the old phasers in this comic. I mean, there's a lot of other things that they're not too worried about consistency so it's like eh, okay but we're gonna pick phasers we're gonna pick phasers okay that's fine whatever right yeah so let's see uh but i mean but, just in regards to the phaser yeah. i did like the and and i wrote it down but i didn't say it yet but i did like the you know him shooting him and then them overheating and he just throws him over his shoulder and grabs another one out of the box uh, that was kind of cool right. did you not like that uh i thought it was great okay so you did like that part you just didn't like sure. that they were the old ones sure yes correct okay and my last thing i'm going to mention is that i thought it was I know why they did it, but it seemed very odd when Spock says, Dr. Grace, Grace, or Gracie, G-A-R-A-C-E. 
Okay, so Dr. Grace, I, I think there's an extra A in there, but... Is there an extra A? Garace. G-A-R-A-C-E. Oh, anyway. yeah, you're right. Anyway, so Oops. Spock says he may have biked out of range. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, the communicators have enough range to talk to a spaceship yeah. in orbit. <laughs> um, and even... And even if you'd say something about, like, he's over the horizon or something, uh, or maybe there's a mountain in the way or something, wouldn't you think they'd be, like, using the ship as a relay point? I, I know I'm getting very AR about this, but it just it just doesn't seem like uh, the communicators being out of range is very likely. Right. I thought the same thing. The yeah. same thing. my last point all right um all right my last comment and it really has nothing to do with the book but in in all of these issues they they really advertise this uh uh one they are they're advertising the dark knight returns which ah, yeah. is a pretty big comic book that was yep. coming out at this time yep and the next issue will too right on the cover oh right but this one has the subscription thing so you yeah. can you could subscribe for just $13 and they'll make you the four issues. Wow. But uh, they're also advertising, uh, they have several different ones for this DC Heroes role playing game, um, which is obviously a, a role playing game, which at the time, you know, the biggest role playing game ever was Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. So when I was a kid and this came out, it was Dungeons and Dragons, but set in the DC universe. I was all over it. But it's. I guess I'm just not smart enough to figure it all out, but goodness gracious, it's hard to uh, try to <laughs> actually play that game. Oh, is it? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you had somebody that knew what they were doing and could be your, you know, dungeon master or whatever that you call them, uh, you know, it would be fine. But you know, being a little junior high kid, just getting the books and trying to figure it all out, uh, it, I kept buying the books, but I don't think I ever played an actual game because. Could never figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Little memory from the past. Yeah, so like I'm I'm looking through here and it says don't miss these exciting adventures and I'm like, okay, I had that one, I had that one. So, anyways, it's just cool. funny. And that's my last comment on this issue. Okay. Then in that case, let's move on to uh, our last issue, number twenty-seven. This one is a standalone called Round, Around the Clock, published date June 1986. Writer is Robert Greenberger, who was normally our editor. Artist, Tom Sutton and Ricardo Vilgran. Letterer, Augustin Moss. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. And guest editor is Mike W. Barr. Hmm. Switching places a bit. The cover shows Red Alert on the bridge of the Excelsior with Kirk ready for action. Savik behind him, and at helm and navigation is Sulu and a lovely female officer that could be Bryce or perhaps a new friend of Sulu's. We don't know yet. Yellow font at the top says Star Trek, followed by ends, ends in red alert, which sounds ominous. It also has an ad for uh, The Dark Knight number one in the lower left corner which normally I would complain about ads that appear on covers, but that's an awesome comic, so I'm okay with that. Kirk steps out of the turbo lift onto the Excelsior's bridge and takes over the duty shift from Mr. Roger. They continue on their mission into deep space to put the new starship Excelsior through her paces. It's a normal day on a starship. Nothing interesting happening. Sulu introduces new bridge officer, Lieutenant Maria Morelli, to Captain Kirk. Soon, Kirk strongly suspects that Sulu and the lieutenant may have a blooming romance going. Kirk calls to Chekhov about stepping up drill frequency and maybe the nature of the drills to keep the crew sharp while they traverse an uneventful chunk of space. Kirk tells Chekhov he wants surprises. The crew can get bored. And while we can put up with boredom, we can't afford to be unprepared while in uncharted space. 
Later, Chekhov brainstorms with two of his people as to how to make future drills more surprising. He even wants to surprise the captain. They come up with the unique but rather risky idea of mucking around with the ship's computers to report false sensor readings of a threat to the ship. They intend to tell no one, including the captain, about it. A surprising drill, indeed. The ship enters an ion storm that forces them to suspend their mapping. Mr. Scott reports the unusually strong ion exposure should not harm the transwarp engines. Kirk is almost disappointed with the lack of risk he is experiencing. He asks if it's time for lunch yet. Finally, Kirk turns the con over to an officer named Tom, while Chekhov and his men complete their tampering with the computer. Sulu invites Savik to his fencing demonstration to take place later in the day. She says, perhaps. Kirk stops by sickbay to get McCoy to join him for lunch. Sulu and Lieutenant Morelli have lunch together, and Morelli tells Savik to scram when she attempts to join them. Sulu is surprised and uncomfortable. He tells Morelli that was inappropriate. Morelli says she did not mean to be that, but they are having such a good time with just the two of them. Savik joins Kirk and McCoy instead. They discuss human mating rituals, given the Sulu thing going on, and ultimately start contrasting them with Vulcan-arranged marriages. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Kanam is taking readings of the ion storm and space around them, in general, and spots the vague outline of three ships. Tom, Bearclaw, Nancy, and the communications officer discuss what they could be and whether they pose a threat to the ship. Meanwhile, Sulu is conducting his fencing demonstration in the gym. The demonstration ends when the call to battle stations is sounded, and Kirk is called to the bridge. Kirk takes the con as they continue to learn more about the three ships partially hidden in an ion storm. Meanwhile, in auxiliary control, Chekhov has a smile on his face as he and his men revel in their handiwork. They all seem to be falling for it, including the captain. One of Chekhov's men reports 92% reaction time. Not bad, but it could be better. Chekhov orders him to launch the attack. Savik reports three ships approaching them, perhaps on an attack run. Kirk orders Chekhov, then corrects himself to order the tactical officer on duty to prepare photon torpedoes to fire. The ships that are approaching have an odd shape for spaceships, they look, but they look somehow familiar. A hammer? A sickle? Weapons officer reports a red on the photon torpedo controls, a malfunction. Meanwhile, in the auxiliary control room, Chekhov and his men wonder what could have gone wrong with the photon controls. He just reprogrammed the control computers for the science station, a totally different system. Chekhov calls for them to end the drill, then coughs. One of his men says, looks like the captain is pulling the plug. They all pass out and later come to in sickbay. The captain gassed them and is now bawling Chekhov out for his stunt. Chekhov defends himself, saying the captain wanted to be surprised. Kirk tells him he wants real drills now. No more computer manipulation. He wants to do better than 92%. Kirk asks Bearclaw to accompany him for a workout. He has some stress to burn off. Sulu and the lieutenant take in a movie. Savik talks to Scotty. Ahura and Amumu plays a liar to put Chekhov to sleep in his quarters. Next, she plays her music for Savik in her quarters. They sing together. And that's it. Just singing. The red alert sounds. On the bridge, Sulu reports to Captain Kirk that sensors don't pick up anything. Chekhov walks in, at first looking a lot like Sulu and saying the surprise drill scored a 94% effectiveness. It did catch people off guard to some degree as it happened during a shift change. Kirk says, good job, and tells him they are going to shoot for 100 on the next drill. Keep it random. Lieutenant Morelli apologizes to Savick for the other day. They make plans to play chess later. Kirk tells Sulu, steady as she goes. The end. Good stuff. Is that sarcasm? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's not a horrible issue, but uh, I mean, nothing really happens as far as like progressing the story, unless unless Sulu's girlfriend is going to stay with us, right? But uh, but I, I didn't understand the singing, per, check off to sleep, and singing with Savic. It just was really random. I agree. It was very well. The bottom line is. Okay, so the story is stepping back from the constant assault on the Federation. I mean, every episode is, you know, something's big's happening, the ship's being attacked, yada yada, things are always happening. So it's nice every once in a while to kind of step back a little bit and say, you know, being on a spaceship isn't always exciting. So let's <laughs> see what happens. But you remember like day to day. Right. So that, I mean, and that did have a, a little exciting thing in there. But for the most part, that kind of step back and say, hey, you know, this is what goes on the ship normally. So, right. and there's been a few TV episodes like that. But usually when they do things like that, they still manage to make something interesting. This mm-hmm. is all not that interesting. And it's not that exciting. And it's all simulated. So it's like, there's really no threat to anybody. So, right. You know, in some ways, it can't always be stress, 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 action, 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 action. Uh, Like maybe the third reboot Star Trek movie looks like from the trailer. But um, you also have to have something interesting going on. Anyway. Right. Yeah, I mean. And then, but it it just doesn't make sense. Savick going around to all the main cast. Tell me about mating. <laughs> How does it work? <laughs> Human mating rituals, yes. Where does the bee go? What's a bird? I mean, just <laughs> I just didn't get it. I I mean, I get she might have questions about it, but she seems really naive in this this story. Yeah. I mean, and this is after Star Trek Three, where she might know a little thing about mating, maybe <laughs> not with with humans, but maybe half humans. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> I don't know. Plus, she's betrothed. I mean, I, I don't know. It just seems like really silly questions. Right. Yep. And and let's talk about the Sulu thing, which triggers this whole line of discussion. Now, in, in X number of years from now, uh, 1994, I think it was 94, when mm-hmm. Generations came out. Right. We're going to find out that Sulu's been married, unbeknownst to anybody. Or at least has a, has a kid. We don't know if they were well, married. Well, I thought... Okay. I, I, I thought they had discussed it enough to know that, you know, he's got a wife and, and at least one, one child, one female right. child. And, you know, he's maintained a family. Right. Even though he's never at home. So exactly. that's the impression I got from the stuff I had seen. That is the impression, right? And then here he is having a little romance going. Now, mind you, this was, what, 80 – what was this, 86? 86. 86, okay. So this is way, 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 way before. Uh, But, you know, as I'm reading this, seeing the romance going on, it's like, ooh, Uki, he's married. (laughs) Right. Yeah, because – yeah. I I did like that he – in this comic, you know – He's talking to her about his past loves, and he does remember. He does mention, you know, Keiko. I think that was her name from a few a few issues back, sure. where he goes right. back home and she's the one that married that other dude. But right. I thought that was cool, just to have that continuity. And then, but it, then it got me to thinking: out of all the people in Star Trek, all the the secondary characters, why does everybody always want to get put Sulu into a relationship? I mean, so like like you said, he he got married or had a kid or whatever in generations, but there's several stories in the in the comic books where he has some past love or whatever and Right. And then here he is getting a new love. So it's just funny that, that uh you know, you don't see Chekhov getting that kind of treatment a lot. Well not maybe not a lot, but he does have a girlfriend every once in a while. Does he? Yes. You remember that one where there was that Russian girl? Yeah, that, that was the the new continuity. I'm I'm no, no, I, I, no, I no. Was... This is the old continuity. I'm talking about the old continuity. But good point. I hadn't thought about the the reboot. I, I thought that was in the reboot ongoing. Well, it yeah. is in the reboot ongoing, but there was also a regular issue where he had a girlfriend. 
Oh, uh, was there? I don't. I'm remember. not the regular. What regular? The older, the older comics. Right. Yeah. Mm. But you're right. It seems to happen quite a bit with uh, Sulu. Right. And he's going to become captain. So it's like Sulu gets all the plum stuff. Well, good for him. Yeah, and I did think that was – I mean his conversation with this girl where he says, you know – and he looked like Bearclaw at the time, so I was really confused. <laughs> pretty sure it was supposed to be him where he's saying you know, uh, that that his actions in Star Trek Three might have knocked him out of the running for command, but right. he, did, he, know, he knows he did the right thing. Right. I thought that was cool, and then especially knowing that eventually he will get his own command. Yeah, I thought that was good too. Yeah. Yeah, and I think sometimes the artists get people confused. Like I had alluded to in the previous issue, there was a part where Chekhov is supposedly stepping off the, um, uh, you know, uh, off the turbo lift and coming onto the bridge, and he looks an awful lot like Sulu. Right. I thought that was this issue somewhere. Uh, it was in your synopsis. Oh, okay. Sorry. So it was this issue. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some drawing confusion going on. Speaking of drawing confusion, may I Go mention ahead. something? Mm-hmm. Title page. Or not the title, the cover. No, no, it's a title page. Title page? Take a look at the title page. As we, as we see um, Kirk coming onto the bridge, it looks like the turbo lift is like a TARDIS or a phone booth or something that's just <laughs> in the middle of the bridge. Right. And Kirk is stepping right off of that thing that's coming up in the middle of the bridge and um and walk and it's like right next to the con so he's coming off and he's uh, the, the the guy at the con is saying admiral on the bridge and it's like kirk only has to take like two or three steps and he's in this chair and it's like i don't remember it being that way <laughs> in yeah, star trek I, I, 3 i don't have to go back and rewatch it i mean it well, would be I did. cool if it was okay you did well it, because it was kind of bothering me. So I went back and I rewatched uh, the bits of Star Trek 3 jumping around. And, okay, so there it is. You got, um, uh, what's his name? Captain Stiles mm-hmm. uh, at the chair, coming in through the turbo lift, coming in, sitting down. The turbo lift is in the same place as on the Enterprise. It's okay. like in, it's, it's behind and to the right. I mean, if you're sitting in the con, it's behind the captain and to the right a bit. So it's in the same place as on the enterprise. Um, and the entire bridge is, is bigger. There's no two ways about it. There are more stations on the Excelsior bridge around the perimeter, but it still looks like a round bridge. And if you take a look in this comic, not only does this look odd, but at least I think it's this comic, maybe it was one of the other ones. There are some uh, top down views of the Excelsior Bridge that makes it look kind of rectangular. And, of course, there's a ton of people at different stations. Right. But, um, but, but they're drawing it in these comics like they're kind of rectangular, and it isn't, uh, at least not based on Star Trek Three. Right. Yeah, I did not pay attention, but you're right. It does look very weird. Yeah. It so. def- there's other shots where it definitely shows stuff behind... The turbo lift. Like oh, it, really? Like it wraps Ooh, around. Ooh, very interesting. Ah. So if you go to page, um, if you're reading the PDF, it's on page nine. Okay. Page Top. nine. Okay. Yeah. So there's page nine. And there's two pages, of course, really, from the comic. Right. And... So it's on the left. Top, first, first panel on the left. Top. Right, right. Okay, so that yeah, there, there's the the turbo, there's the turbo lift, and then it looks like people are walking past it into the right. back of the a very long bridge. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. I, yeah, I, I had totally missed all that. So this reminds me a little bit more of like maybe the bridges of the um, Stargate uh, big ships, mm. which is very rectangular, very rectangular bridges. Uh, long and narrowish. Uh, it even isn't. No, I'm, I'm not even going to go into defiant. But it, I thought it was kind of odd, especially since there's no precedent, at least in Star Trek Three, for that shape. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <sighs> well, 
That's it. That's all I have to say about this one. Or, okay, I do have one more thing. Isn't it kind of odd? Maybe you mentioned this too earlier in your comments, but isn't it odd of hers just like walking around playing her liar and, uh, you know? I don't understand it. You know, stopping in the Chekhov's quarters. To sing him to sleep? To sing him to sleep. And it's like, I'm going, hmm? And then, <sighs> and then she's in Savik's quarters. And, you know, I don't know. She's in her pajamas or muumuu, whatever. And it's like, hmm. And then Savik's even singing with her or something. It wasn't Savik singing or two or something? Right. Right. Uh, I don't know. Weird. Yeah, I, I did not understand any of that. Yeah. I was even a little uncomfortable with what it's was It's really out of character with everybody. Yeah. 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 That's it. I don't, how good, I don't care how good a friend I am. I just would feel odd someone singing me to sleep and then leaving. You and know then, what I mean? I don't know. Then taking all the cash out of my wallet yeah, take, before they leave. <laughs> stealing the TV and then she just walks right out. <laughs> you know, take all of his jewelry with her while she leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, all right. What else you got? Anything? Uh, I do have one last thing. I thought it, I thought it was mildly interesting their depiction of a movie two hundred years from now. So Sulu and uh, Maloney or Maroney or whatever her name is, right? You know, they they take in a flick, a date, and there's a single panel that shows them sitting next to each other, and they show what they're watching. Right. So that was, you know, it was kind of like a instead of a, a square picture, it's kind of curved at the top, and it looks like it's probably three D. Right. It's, it's like a dome with a hologram inside of it, or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, and there's like, it's a very busy picture. I guess they're trying to cram a lot of like like motion kind of stuff into a frozen, well, a drawing. Right, and there's like three fem- human female figures on it, and they seem to be ma- meeting an alien that has a fish head, sort of. <laughs> and then right. maybe there's another fish head figure to the right of 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 that first one, that first fish head one. And I gotta say, it was interesting. I I, th- I think the fish heads were an interesting choice, an odd choice, but um, yeah. there you go. It reminded me of the uh, the space opera that uh, Emperor Palpatine and, and Anakin take in there. Oh. Star Wars Episode Three. Uh huh. Gosh, I wish I remember that. I don't remember that. Oh really? No. But in that one, but... it was like this little blob of water that was kind of like floating in this auditorium, and things were swimming around in it, going so. around in it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's supposed to have absolutely no relationship to Earth. So there's a lot of possibilities for interesting creativity uh, right. on what you might see uh, in something like that. Huh. Anyway, that's all I have to say. That's it. All right, cool. Well, I do not have anything else. Okay. Okay, well, uh, next week we're going to come back and we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to do the Star Trek Green Lantern crossover. Wow. Wow. The crossover, I didn't see coming, but I probably should have. Of course, not as much as the Planet of the Apes crossover, not seeing that coming. <laughs> but right. but still, Green Lantern, and they both operate in space, sure. Right. But I wasn't really expecting it. But it's here. Six right. issues worth of goodness. Will be interesting. Yes. Right. So, and it's set in the ongoing universe, so it's mm-hmm. going to be, uh, you know, the uh, the movie verse. So, Captain yeah. or um, Chris Pine one. Chris Pine, yeah. yeah. It is interesting that when these issues were coming out, Chris Pine was in in the uh, the rumor mill that he was going to potentially be the new Green Lantern in the the movie verse. Oh no, really? Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> <laughs> but he did take a role in the. Uh, DC, DC Cinematic Universe. universe. He's going to yep. play Steve Trevor, which which I think would be a good fit for him. Yeah, I, I still think of Lyle Wagner in that role, but <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, bring right. Pine on. Bring Pine on board. So that'll be interesting, I think. Yeah. So be back next week where we do Green Lantern Star Trek 1 through 3. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. 
Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.